Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. This is a Bible study weekend. Scribe tribe, what up? Uh, so glad for all of you who are filling up the tables. Um, if you remember, last week we did First and Second Samuel. This week we're going to do the Psalms. And uh, I am going to make all of your Bible church dreams come true today as we study the Psalms. Because today I'm going to teach you how to read poetry. And three people cheer. <laughs> let's, let's try this. Who's excited about their derby plans? Cool hats, you know, smokers in the backyard. Louisville? Yeah. That was a little better. A little more excitement. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I understand for some of you, you don't do poetry. Um, so what I'm going to do today is every so often, if I sense I'm losing the room or we just have no excitement around this, like three seconds ago in my introduction, um, I'll give you a little brain break, okay? That's what they call it. My, my son's first grade teacher calls it a brain break. I'll give you a little brain break and you know, bring up something about sports or whatever, bring you back. Okay, now, quick audience participation poll, all right, if you will. Uh, who in here reads poetry on a regular basis? And by that, I mean like twice a week. Who in here? Okay, so again, about three of us, all right. Huh. You pretend to be so much more cultured on Instagram, by the way. I mean, <laughs> posting pictures of the food you ordered that looks like an art piece. Drinking fine wine in a barn, in a renovated barn, $53 plate, three times too small. Sides a la carte. Anyway, so you're way more cultured on Instagram. Now, listen, here's what I would suggest to you. I would suggest to you that you might surprise yourself when it comes to your poetry skills, especially if you grew up in the church, right? Because, because there's a lot of poetry in the Bible. Fill in the blank for me, all right? Watch this. The Lord is my shepherd, I... Even though I walk through the valley of the... I will... You know a poem. Look at you. You know at least one poem. And in fact, I would suggest to you that if you're a good Bible reader, you've actually read lots of poetry over the course of your life. Uh, did you know that uh, that's a derby? And <laughs> did you know? That 43% of the Bible is, uh, is biblical narrative, as we looked at last week. That's things like First and Second Samuel. But 33% of Scripture, about one of three pages, is poetry. Do you know that? So you're way more cultured even than your Instagram account. Today at brunch, I want you to just go ahead when your friend says, what did you do this morning? You can say, um, you know, I went to a poetry reading 
of culturally diverse voices from the Eastern hemisphere. You know, like they'll think you're super cultured, right? And I joke, but I don't because that's exactly what you're engaging in when you engage in the Psalms. Now, a few more fun Bible facts for you about poetry. Not only is one of every three pages in the Bible poetry, but did you know that when God speaks in the Bible, the majority of the times that he speaks, it's in poetic verse. His preferred form of communication in his word is poetry. Did you know, as we will see next week when we study the prophets, did you know that when the prophets do their job and they give us their thus saith the Lord's and they speak on behalf of God, about 99% of the time, divine speech in the prophets is in poetic verse. That leads me to say that you can't understand a big chunk of the Bible if you can't read poetry. Apparently God likes poetry and God must think that poetry is a potent form of communication because he uses it a lot. Now why though? Why? Why? Like this is God's inspired word. Why did he choose a culture that values poetry so high to deliver it? Why would he speak mostly in poetry? Why did he allow a third of his word to be poetic verse? Well, uh, in my humble opinion, long paragraph here, but this is important. Uh, It is because there is something about poetry that is uniquely capable of capturing the beauties, the mysteries, and the transcendent realities of God and life. You know, there are some things about life that are larger than life, aren't there? There are some things about this world that are out of this world, aren't there? There are some things about reality that need more than just science and math to realize. There are some things about the normal human experience that normal words can't quite capture, but poetry can. It's art. And this is the business of art putting words to the unspeakable beauties, enchanting mysteries, and haunting realities of life. Politicians don't use poetry to to write laws. Scientists don't use poetry to report research. Doctors don't use poetry to diagnose illness. So the value of poetry isn't necessarily in its precision or its pragmatism. The value of poetry is in how it can awaken your imagination and speak to your emotions. Uh, Tish Harrison uh, Warren uh, is, uh, is a Bible author. She also is a columnist, New York Times. And she recently wrote an article called Why Poetry is So Crucial Right Now. It's a fantastic article, she wrote about a year ago, but it's basically her case for the Psalms in the 21st century West. And I'll summarize it for you, but she makes three key points here. Uh, you know, first, She says, uh, God's poems, or uh, good poems, reclaim the power and grace of words. The power and grace of words. I love that. We live in a world saturated with words, don't we? Every time we pull out our smartphones, we are assaulted with words. Dishonest words from leaders or media. Demanding words from work via our email. Manipulative words in the ad space online. Relentless words through that group text that you wish you could leave, but you don't have the courage to leave, right? We have cheapened, exhausted, and polluted the power of words. And poetry is a resistance against that because it treats words with care. They are slowly fashioned into lanterns that illuminate life for us. A second, she says, poems slow us down. Can't read a poem fast. 
At least you can't read it well and read it fast. And in an age where everything is like optimized and efficient, where we are scared to spend five seconds in silence or be bored for two minutes, poetry teaches us to pay attention again, to think, to contemplate. Last, she says, poetry names our uh, deepest longings. It names our deepest longings. And I love that. Poetry can put words to the transcendent, words to the mysterious, words to the spiritual, words to the emotional, when normal words fail. That's why Warren goes on to write that in this way, poetry is just like prayer. It puts words to our deepest longings, but before God. And no wonder the Psalms are the first prayer book of the church. It's the perfect combination of poetry and prayer inspired by God's spirit. Now, Who's excited about poetry now? A little better. Nib high football rules. That's what I feel like saying. Okay, now we could, we could do a lecture on poetry. We could. Um, and I could explain to you all like the nuances about it and how to read it and everything. And, and that would help. But we would do, be doing major injustice to poetry if you didn't get an opportunity to experience it throughout the day. Because that's where poetry does its work, when you experience it. So let's start outside the Bible. Let me just quote to you uh, a few poetic verses. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and recognize the true meaning of its creed, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will come together and sit at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day my four children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but rather by the content of their character. I have a dream today. That's Pastor Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech delivered on the Washington Mall a generation ago. Powerful speech. And let me ask you, would that speech be as powerful without the poetic meter and rhythm and punch that he so gracefully gives to it when he writes and speaks? How about this, uh, this poem? That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That's poetic verse. Neil Armstrong. His words, poetic words, when he first walked on the moon. And isn't it interesting? Lots of great moments in history are marked with poetry. Again, why? Well, there's something about poetry, again, that can grab things that are larger than life, or pun intended, out of this world and give words to them. How about one more poem? I'm gonna have to read this one. I don't have it memorized. Players gonna play, 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 play. And the haters gonna hate, 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 hate. Baby, I'm just gonna shake, 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 shake. I shake it off. I shake it off. How much did some of y'all pay for tickets to her concert a couple months ago? 
And how much have you given to the Lord this year? I don't need to know. I don't need to know, but God knows. I'm just saying. Now, Shake It Off uh, surpassed 1 billion streams this month. 1 billion streams and good for Tay-Tay. All right, we love you, Tay-Tay. And for real, for real, for real. I want you to, like, most songs are poetic. They are. In fact, if you know a worship song, you know a poem. Now, again, that was quite a bit of poetry. Is everybody still with me here? Good job. You're doing great. Everyone? Wow. How about that Lakers Grizzlies series? LeBron James really shut Dylan Brooks up, didn't he? LOL. All right. Now that you're back, let's hone in on the Psalms specifically. Okay. Um, I want to write this word down here because um, it'll just be important for you to know. Uh, the word is salter, not like a salt shaker sort of salter. Okay, you can see the silent P on the front of it. Um, a psalm is one of the prayer songs in the 150 psalm collection called the Psalter. This is what scholars use, the word scholars use to talk about the collection of the 150 psalms, the Psalter. And the Psalter is organized many scholars would argue, in a very purposeful way. First, again, there's 150 Psalms. They're divided in five books. I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, open them today and just be flipping through the Psalms as we go through this because you'll see some of these idiosyncrasies I'm talking about. There are five books in the Psalter, all right? One, two, three, four, and five. And if you go to chapter one or 42 or 73 or 90 or 107, you'll actually see in the text the demarcations for the change in books. And that was not added by some 20th, you know, 20th century translator, that's in the text. Now I'll come back in a second as to why they're separated into those five books, at least my theory, because there's lots of theories about it. Right, but it's important to note here at the top. Uh, now most of these prayer songs seem to have started, not all of them, some of them seem to be corporate. Most of them seem to have started as personal prayer songs like that perhaps David wrote in the quiet, if you will. But they were later collected, many scholars believe, around the time of uh, the exile, which it was 586 BC. Um, I'll argue later that 538 BC is probably a little closer uh, to the date. But they were collected again for a very specific reason at this time. Some of them had existed for centuries at this point. Psalm 90 is believed to have been written by Moses. It had been around for hundreds of years, right? But at 538, something happened that made the Israelite people say, we need to collect these, uh, these ancient prayer songs of our spiritual ancestors together. And, and we'll get there. But this is how the Psalms are organized. Now, Let's talk about the types of the Psalms, the types of the Psalms. Because uh, this is also important for you to be able to interpret them. Um, so I grew up a baseball player, right? So I know that there are different types of baseball gloves, right? There's the catcher's mitt, which is different than the first baseman's mitt, which is different than an infielder's glove. An infielder's glove's like a little shorter so the infielder can get the ball out quicker. Outfielder's glove's a little longer so they can have a longer reach as they're trying to run a ball down in the outfield. If you grow up playing baseball, you can actually tell just by how a player lays his glove on the ground what kind of glove it actually is, right? You learn to recognize the types. 
In the same way, if you want to use these psalms, well, you got to learn to recognize the types. And there are different types. Again, lots of debate about what the specific types are, but you'll get a general idea from what I've laid out for you here. First, there's what we would call the penitential psalms, the penitential psalms. Penitential just means, I'm sorry. These are psalms of confession, psalms of repentance. Uh, Last week, we read Psalm 51. You remember this? When we were talking about David's great sin with Bathsheba. If you flip over to Psalm 51, you'll see in the subscription at the top of the Psalm, it says this happened when David and the Bathsheba thing went down, all right? Okay, so David is is reflecting here and confessing here over his great sin. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. You can hear the poetic rhythm to it, can't you? Uh, Next type of Psalm is what we call the Hallel Psalms, the Hallel Psalms. I'm gonna add... uh, 146 to 150 in here because those are Hallel Psalms too. Do you know what a what do Hallel mean? You know what Hallelujah means? Do you know what Hallelujah means? Um, hallelujah is just Hallel Yah. Why can't I write? There we go. Yah. And Hallel means what? Praise or you know give praise to. And uh, Yah is short form for. Yahweh. So the Hallel Psalms are praise Yahweh Psalms. If you go to Psalm 146 through 50, you'll see that every single one of those closing five Psalms, it's like a doxology. They begin with praise God, Hallel Yah, right? It's fascinating. These Psalms are just kind of those exclamatory moments in life. It's like when you hit the winning shot at the end of the game and people just go crazy like, yeah, all right, you know, like, yeah, dude, way to go, just, just bump, you know, you're like freaking out, you know. This is, this is like in church when it's like, who's like the Lord? There's no one like the Lord, praise the Lord, you know. A little bit softer now, a little bit softer, a little bit louder now, a little bit louder now. It's like, that's, that's these Psalms, okay, you get it. Uh, next is Songs of Ascent. The songs of ascent. Uh, there's two things to note about these. First, they are songs of ascent. You know why they're called the songs of ascent? It's because the, the pilgrims heading to Jerusalem to worship during holidays, festivals, would ascend up into Jerusalem and sing these. These are holiday songs. They're called songs of ascent because Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level, frankly. Okay, so there's no way to get to it without ascending. If you live in somewhere like Galilee where Jesus lived, that's like six, 700 feet below sea level. So not only are you traversing about 70 miles of terrain to get to Jerusalem, but you're going uphill over a half a mile as well. So you're ascending, right? You're ascending. And there are songs specifically done uh, during holiday times, during festivals. So these are like Easter songs. These are like Christmas songs. They're songs that tell the time for you. Like if I'm up here singing away in a manger, what time is it? It's Christmas time. That's how these songs uh, function. Uh, next, there's wisdom psalms. My favorite is Psalm uh, 1. This is my favorite psalm, period. First in the Psalter, first in our hearts, Psalm 1, I'm just saying. And uh, it's, it's brilliant. It makes you contemplate just the realities of life. And then, of course, there are the messianic psalms. And we're going to come back to those in a second. But some of these are just eerie in the way that Jesus fulfills them. Uh, next slide here. There's also the imprecatory psalms. That's a $10 you know, Bible word for you. Everybody say imprecatory Psalms. Yeah, good, good, good. And these are the Psalms where, um, okay, they're the I'm mad songs. 
If penitential is I'm sorry, this is I'm angry. Actually, let's say it like this. I'm very angry song is what they are. You know, a lot of people actually have problems with these psalms because of how nasty they can get. There's rage. There's a call for violence. Oftentimes there's calls to wipe out my enemies and their children. Sometimes when you read these psalms, you're like, I thought we were supposed to love thy enemy, God. And we are supposed to love thy enemy. But one of the things I love about the psalms is the rawness of the emotions that we read. All right, let's just read one here. Uh, Psalm 35, four through eight. Bring shame and disgrace on those trying to kill me. Turn them back and humiliate those who wanna harm me. Blow them away like chaff in the wind sent by the angel of the Lord. Jump down to the bottom. Let them be caught in the trap they set for me. Let them be destroyed in the pit they dug for me. Oh, and also for the record, this is one of the PG-13 imprecatory Psalms. I could show you worse. Now, real quick, we're gonna talk about this again here in a second when we talk about interpretive keys, but, but I want you to see, um, everything that's, that's said in the Psalms is not necessarily endorsed as appropriate. These are poetic prayers. They get real, they get raw, they get honest. They're hyperbolic and over the top sometimes. And what makes it okay is that they're not taking their rage and anger out on their enemy, they're taking it to God, you see? And that's how we're supposed to deal with strong emotion. But okay, the imprecatory Psalms, they cause a lot of people struggles today. Today specifically in our modern culture. Um, because they're so vengeful, wrathful, raging. But here's what I have found. I have found that the, the people who have problems with them are usually white, progressive, Western, young, and affluent. It's true. Because you see, if you live under discrimination or racism, if you live in slavery, if you live somewhere where justice is denied you, if you're oppressed, if you're poor, and the reason you're poor is because your government is corrupt, if you feel helplessly beat down by your enemies, these Psalms actually give words to what's in your heart and soul. You want God to come and give them theirs. You want, you want to trust God with vindication, but you need somewhere to let those emotions go, right? You want to see the wrath of God. You want to see justice established. You want the powerful to be cut down for the ways that they have harmed you. And these imprecations give words to that. Back to our list, there's the lament psalms. Okay, these are the I'm sad psalms. And I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, if you struggle with mental health issues, I have friends who, who, have, who have told me these psalms are lifelines for their prayer life. I am bent over and racked with pain. All day long I walk around filled with grief. A raging fever burns within me and my health is broken. I'm exhausted and completely crushed. My groans come from an anguished heart. Wow. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. Can you believe words like this are canonized in scripture? I can. 
They're incarnational, right? Fully human, fully divine. And they give words to the real and the raw of many of our daily experiences. A couple more types. There's the Thanksgiving songs, which you probably guess what those are about. Then there are also just some plain hymns, right? Plain old hymns. But these are the different types. We've got to learn how to recognize the types. Uh, Walter Brueggemann. Uh, I'm not even going to try to spell Brueggemann. <laughs> I was about to try to spell Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann. Uh, he actually suggests a different way to type the Psalms. Um, he says the Psalms, if, if you really want to read them well, um, you, you need to understand which season of life that particular Psalm is speaking to. And there are three different seasons of life. There are seasons of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Seasons of orientation are those where you're experiencing the order and the beauty of God, or those where you want to just simply appreciate his design and, and his creativity, right? Seasons of disorientation are ones like we just read, some of these like lament psalms or um, even penitential psalms where life is just wrecked and you don't know what to say and you don't know what to say about what to do and you like just feel like your life has gone off the rails and you're depressed or you're sad or you've ruined everything, right? And you just gotta, you gotta ventilate that emotions to God. If, look, and these are real. If we only read Psalms of orientation, we're not reading uh, the Psalm, we're, we're not taking a full dose of reality, are we? Right? So we need the Psalms of or, uh, disorientation. We also need the ones of reorientation. These are the moments where we're coming out of the valley of the shadow of death and we need a word of hope and we're being restored. We're being healed. They can nurture our souls in powerful ways. Again, it's another way to look at the types of Psalms. If you can learn how to type them, they'll become much more practical and, and powerful in your life. Now, uh, let's go to interpretive keys here, all right? Interpretive keys. The Psalms are ancient Hebrew poetry, so you can't read them like you would, you know, the newspaper or what, people don't even read the newspaper anymore. Like you would a blog online, okay? From a, from a thought leader. Okay, so you can't read them the same way. All right. First, first, before we even get to, to this part, first, you should know that the Psalms, even though they're ancient Hebrew poetry, uh, they function like modern poetry and use lots of different figures of speech. Now, you remember what figures of speech are, don't you? They're things like uh, simile, metaphor, imagery. personification, hyperbole, and so on, right? And the Psalms utilize these. They utilize these. Uh, the Psalms also utilize this, uh, maybe you call it literary style or poetic style. I wouldn't call it a figure, figure of speech per se. But they utilize the style over and over. Just an important note for you called uh, parallelisms. Anybody know what parallelism, lel, hmm, LL, thank you. Parallelism, I'm spell check generation guys, okay. Parallelism, okay. parallelism is when, uh, is when you read something and they repeat it over, they repeat something over in this line and then over again in the next line and then they repeat it again in the next line and then again in the next line, just to make sure you get the point, right? So let me show you an example of this. Uh, psalm 19, one through four. For the record, this is C.S. Lewis's favorite psalm. This is number two on my psalm list. Psalm one, Psalm 19, and Psalm 139. That's my list. 
And just notice all the figures of speech and the parallelism used here. I'm only reading you the first four verses. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth. Their words to all the world. Beautiful, right? Now, did you see some of it here? Did you see some here? First, we can see the parallelism, can't we? Can you see the parallelism where the same thing's just stated over and over again? The heavens proclaim, the skies display, they speak without a sound, their voice is never, why? Why are they saying this over and over? They want your mind to slow down for a second and think about one thing. So good for us. The Psalms are so good for our hurried culture. They, they, want, they want you to focus on this one thing. And what's the point that they keep repeating? When you look at the created world around you, when you look at God's design in the earth, in our body, just look around, you see him. He reveals himself through that. If you read on the rest of Psalm 19, uh, the psalmist talks about the other form of divine revelation, which is God's law, God's word, God's world, right? He reveals himself through that. The psalmist doesn't want you to miss that. Did you see the personification? Okay, let me ask you like this. What language do, uh, do, the, do the, the, the skies speak? <laughs> they have a Southern accent? Of course not, right? Like the skies, the heavens, they don't, they don't speak, right? But this personification is used to make a point about how when you walk outside, if you'll open your eyes to it, if you'll look around, if you'll investigate the, the natural sciences, you will continue to learn about the greatness of our God. By the way, there's some amazing imagery in this word right here, continue to speak. It's like the Hebrew word, and I'm no Hebrew guy, but the Hebrew word, yabia, and it means something like to, to, to bubble up. It's this idea that it's just bubbling up. It's gushing out like a spring. What's gushing out, right? The revelation of God from the world around us. Pretty amazing stuff here. Now, uh, back to our slide here. I don't wanna skim over this one because this is another important interpretive key. The Psalms are... Uh, and I got this from the Bible Project. If you go to necchurch.org slash resources, on that page for every book that we study, uh, Jonathan Thomas, one of our staff has built next level go deeper resources for you to go deeper on these books. And a lot of the contents from the Bible Project, it's just like this group of scholars that came together in order to explain the Bible for everyday people. You should definitely go check it out. And uh, they, they would suggest that the Bible and specifically books like the Psalms are designed to be ancient meditation literature. They are literally written in a sophisticated way to keep you coming back and reading it over and over and over for a lifetime and continuing to get God's goodness out of it. It's, it makes me think of going to the gym. If you go to the gym and you're like, I'm gonna get buff, and then you get under the bench press and you do one rep and walk out. Like, you just wasted your time. It's the same thing with ancient meditation literature. You can't just do one rep if you really wanna get all you can out of it. Now, here's what can frustrate us sometimes about the Bible and the way that it was, or even about ancient poetry. 
Um, sometimes it can feel simple. It doesn't have the details that we would like it to have. Or sometimes poetry doesn't say, here's the point, right? It's art, but it, it, didn't, it doesn't tell us that. Just because it doesn't say, here's the point, doesn't mean it doesn't have a point. The poems are artistic. They're designed so that you read them again and again. And that's the genius of it. It's a discovery process as you go. Have you ever noticed sometimes you'll read a Psalm or the Bible and it'll fall flat? And then you'll come back to it a month later, a year later, a decade later, and it just electrifies you. That's how this sort of literature works. Let me give you an example of it. My favorite psalm. This is half of it. It's actually six verses. But again, I want you to notice all the figures of speech here. And I want you to notice how it describes the ideal Bible reader. I think it is, I think it is no uh, interpretive mistake that the very first psalm they place there tells us what the ideal reader of the psalms looks like. Oh, the joys of those who do not... Notice the parallelism here that comes next. Follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. You see that, right? But they delight in the law of the Lord. Here's some hyperbole for you. Meditating on it day and night. Now you can't meditate on it all the time, right? Because you gotta sleep at some point. God made our bodies that way. But you get the point here with the hyperbole. Oh, and then there is some beautiful imagery Coming up right here. Those who do meditate on the law day and night, they're like trees planted along the riverbank. What the, what the this psalm is hearkening back to is the Garden of Eden. I want you to think of Eden and the tree of life and the river that flows from it. You're like this riverbank tree. The Garden of Eden is gone, but how can you recreate that in your life? Meditate on the law of the Lord day and night and you will be like this riverbank tree bearing fruit in every season. You don't bear fruit in every season. Just spring, right? You'll even bear fruit in winter. Your leaves will never wither and you'll prosper in all that you do. Oh, can you see the beauty of this? It's beautiful. Psalm one begins the whole collection because this is what we're to look like as Bible readers. You meditate on scripture. You read and ponder, read and ponder, read and ponder. And as you continue to read, this amazing divine things happens. The Bible starts to read you. It starts to read you. And you start unconsciously just applying the eternal truths of God to your life. You become the riverbank tree. You thrive, spring, winter, fall, summer, whatever. So if you're not reading them over and over, I would suggest to you, you're actually not reading them right. Okay. Now again, that was a lot of poetry. It's now noon. This is when like a fourth of you usually walk out. So let's not do that today, but are we doing okay? We're gonna go on our last run here, all right? How about those reds? They stink again. They actually beat the A's yesterday, so they're 12 and 15, and they're ahead of the Cardinals, which is worth celebrating. All right. I wanted to do the Psalms this week after First and Second Samuel because the Psalms are intimately connected with David. This will be the last piece that we put in the puzzle here. Okay, David. David is central to this musical prayer book. Okay, so um, when you read the Psalms, what you'll see above a lot of them is there's, again, these little subscriptions right? Sometimes they'll tell you the author. Sometimes they'll tell you the occasion of the psalm. Sometimes it'll tell you the instrument that it's played to or whatever, right? The, the tune that it's played to. Very interesting, right? And if you were go, to go through uh, uh, your Bible, what you would find is that 73 of the psalms were uh, ascribed to David, 73. 
Now I found that, that one or two things happen here. Either one, people had no idea that David wrote some of the Psalms or two, they thought he wrote all of them. It's actually neither, he wrote about half. Uh, there were other amazing authors, by the way. Solomon writes a couple. Uh, Moses has got one. He's got some great millennial names like He-Man. Dare you to name your kid He-Man. Asaph, Ethan, sons of Korah. Do you know who these sons of Korah, these are all worship leaders, by the way, during the time of David, but the sons of Korah, pretty cool. They're like this worship guild that starts around David's time and continued for hundreds of years after that. They continued all the way through the time of exile. We're talking about hundreds of years of musicians in this group. You think the Temptations got it going on because they've been around for 60 years? Gigantic brands like, like the Gaithers, the Hillsong, they got nothing on the boys of Korah. I'm just saying, right? Like 500 years. These are brilliant leaders. They got something to say. Now, um, not only is David supposedly responsible for about half of these, but I would suggest to you that the entire collection was collected on purpose to remind the readers of David's story. The collection actually expects you to know his story. I actually recently read a scholar who suggests that the entire Psalter, those five books, you remember that we talked about earlier? Those books are arranged in specific order to map you through the story of David. And why? Why is David's story so important to those generations that come later? Well, again, if you remember last week, it is David in whom the covenant is updated. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a great earth. In Genesis 3 and 11, we do a great job of screwing it up, sin in the garden, Cain kills Abel, Noah's generation, which is awful. And then we find out Noah, the righteous man, ain't that good either. Then the Tower of Babel, boom. Bad situation, what's God gonna do? Wipe the slate clean, start with somebody new? No, instead he finds Abraham, right? Finds Abraham, this pagan, and he says, Abraham, through you and your family, I'm gonna bring blessing to the whole world. Remember this covenant, right? Fast forward, we get to the time of David. David's like Abraham's great, 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 times a lot grandson, and he says, David, you're a great king, you're a man after my own heart, I am going to update this covenant through you, the son of Abraham, the son of David. It'll be your line that sets up my forever kingdom. David, you're gonna, have, you're gonna have a son and he's gonna be a king and he will reign forever. Now, if you were here last week, we saw how all the prophets picked this up in every single generation that comes after David. They're all waiting and hoping on this. Right? So when Solomon is born, everybody's like, oh, this is the great son of David. He's super wise and he's building the temple. This must be the one second Samuel seven is, oh, wait. He might be wise, but in some ways he ain't smarter than a fifth grader, right? So how many wives, how many concubines? So Solomon's clearly not the one. So what do they say after Solomon's generation? They say, don't worry, God's gonna raise up the great son of David. It's gonna be one of these next kings. Then when you read first and second Kings, you see that king after king after king after king after king ain't the one. Even the good kings ain't that good. This is the message of first and second Kings. None of these guys were the great son of David. I just summed it up for you. We'll do that book next year, all right? Maybe next week when we get out here early, all right? But like, that's, that's, that's the vibe. Well, what do they do after we get through all the kings? What do they place their hope in? They're like, don't worry, God's still cooking something. He'll bring us the great son of David. He'll bring us the Messiah. Then they go into exile, right? And it is a just punishment for their disobedience. The Assyrians wipe out the north. The Babylonians come along, 586, 587. They wipe out the south. And when they're in exile, 
with their temple and smoldering ruins, what do they say? They say, don't worry, let's just stay, remain faithful to God. He's gonna bring the great son of David. Even in Jesus' time, they're still hoping in this. Imagine you live in Jesus' time, okay? And you're in the Roman empire now and they're just the new evil empire oppressing you, right? In the Roman empire, your Roman neighbors think you're super weird if you're, if you're a Jew. First off, they're like, why would you only worship one God when you could have like all of them, like us? Second off, why would you worship a God that has such strict purity laws? Our gods are wild. Third off, why would you have food laws that disclude pork? I mean, bacon, have you ever? And, and then last, last, why do you keep calling yourselves the chosen ones? You clearly are not. This is Rome. Caesar is Lord. He's the son of God. Clearly you are his subjects. That's tough pushback, right? That's tough pushback. But if you're in Jesus' time, you know what you say to them? You say, don't worry, the great son of Abraham, the great son of David is coming. I still believe that God will be faithful. This is the defining promise in so many ways for the people of God. Now I wanna tie all this together, all right? You ready? All right, stay with me here. Some scholars suggest that the Psalms were compiled after the Babylonian exile at about 538 BC. It's the date I gave you earlier. And I think that's, that's, that seems very logical when you look at it. Because you see, when the exiles get back after Babylonian and then Persian exile, when they are sent back to Jerusalem, they find the temple torn down, the city's a wreck, the original glory of David's kingdom is gone. And so you know what they need in that moment to energize and synergize the people? You know what they need? They need hope. They need to be reminded of the story of David. They need to be reminded of the covenant that God promised them. They need to be reminded that God is faithful and he's gonna work through this and the rebuild starts today. That's what they need to be reminded of. And so many scholars believe that it was in this moment that they begin to bring these ancient prayers of their spiritual forefathers together into the Psalter to remind them of their hope. Isn't this beautiful? And what's interesting is David's story maps incredibly well on the story of the exiles. Like David wanted God's presence and he wanted to build a temple, right? What did the exiles want? To rebuild the temple so they could experience the presence of God once again. David had so much to lament, complain, and rage over regarding his enemies. So did the exiles. These foreign empires wiped him out. David was sorry for his sin and faced hard consequences. So did the exiles. That's why they ended up in exile, because of their sin. David was continually saved by the unconditional love and faithfulness of God. And this was the hope of the post-exile community. David looked forward to his great son. This is who the community of exiles were waiting for. Do you see? Do you see? This is one of the superpowers of the Psalms, y'all. Not only was it a prayer book that maps on basically all, the whole gamut of human experience, orientation, disorientation, reorientation, lament and thanksgiving and praise. And yeah, not only does it do that, but it is a book of hope. It was compiled in a sophisticated and purposeful way around David and the covenant that met the exiles in their experience. It was a reminder of their messianic hopes. Now let's run to Jesus. During Jesus' time, Jesus comes along. Still, they still thought they were in exile. Rome's just a new evil empire. And these people, Jesus' contemporaries are still reading and praying the Psalms. And then they start to follow him and they start to look at Jesus' life and they start to see the uncanny resemblance between David and this even better David, Jesus. 
When Mary sings in the Magnificat, she sings Psalm 103 of the birth of Jesus. When the Father speaks identity over Jesus at his baptism, he speaks Psalm 2. When Jesus does miracles, he does miracles that the Psalms say are God's miracles and God's miracles alone. When you look at his ministry, Jesus had some favorites, right? And guess who his favorites were? The same favorites that Yahweh and the great king would have. Look at Jesus' death, right? When you look at passages like Psalm 22, David's sufferings, though he stated them in a hyperbolic way, map almost perfectly on the sufferings of Jesus. And then look at the resurrection. David himself says, you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your holy one to rot in the grave. And then he died. What was he talking about? Perhaps this points to the fulfillment of the great son of David, the forever king. So you see, see, to be clear, all these aren't like predictive prophecies, by the way, but the contemporaries of Jesus saw uncanny fulfillment in them. He was just like David, but better. They see in Jesus all that David represented, all that they hoped for from God and waited for in restoration. Jesus was the grand cosmic solution to them. That's why the New Testament quotes the Psalms 96 times with perhaps 200 more clear allusions all pointing to Jesus. It's Jesus himself uh, who in uh, Matthew 24 quotes Psalm 110 to talk about himself. Surrounded by the Pharisees, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they replied, he's the son of David. Duh, we all know that, right? And Jesus responded, then why does David, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, he thinks the Psalms are inspired by the Spirit, by the way, that's interesting, call the Messiah my Lord. For David said, the Lord, that's the Messiah, said to my Lord, excuse me, that's, excuse me, that's Yahweh. This is the Messiah. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Now translation here, uh, Jesus is saying, I'm the great son of David, that's me. I'm the fulfillment of all this. I'm the hope of the exiles, I'm the cosmic solution. David calls me Lord, Yahweh will humble the nations under my feet. I'm the one who will sit in the place of honor at God's right hand. Psalm two and Psalm 110 are basically about me. And look, it's because of Jesus, church, that we can join the exiles and claim these prayers for ourselves in our time. The New Testament calls us temporary residents, former, uh, foreigners, citizens of another city, right? In a way, we are still in exile right now until God comes back. So these poems are for us. Our longings are the same as our spiritual ancestors. We want God's full presence, don't we? We want him to bring his temple down and make the whole universe a temple once again, like in the beginning. We lament and we complain and we rage about injustice as we wait for final vindication. We express sorrow over our sin, knowing that Jesus was faithful to separate us from our sins as far as the East is from the West. And we place our hope in the great son of David, but we know what his name is. His name is Jesus. This is what we have in the Psalms. The prayer book of our spiritual mothers and fathers, the prayer book of Jesus and the disciples, the prayer book of us. Let's not waste it. Christians love talking about having a personal relationship with God. You have that through prayer, prayer. Prayer is actually how you have a relationship with God. You can't have a relationship with God without it, at least not much of one. And we have the Psalms to enrich our prayer life with an overabundance of spiritual wealth. This is the unique contribution to the Bible of the Psalms. Prayer. 
They aren't God talking to us. They're actually us talking to God. So let's drink deeply over them uh, or drink deeply of them over and over and over until they become our reflex. Let's allow them to slow us down and make us think and stun us with God's beauty. Let's find a companion in them when life is disorienting. Let's find hope in them when we're climbing out of the valley and let's find Jesus in them because he is the great son of David. Now here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. We're gonna take communion and uh, then we will uh, leave uh, for the week. But I'm gonna have Corbin come on stage and he is going to briefly, as we reflect and prepare our hearts for communion, sing for us uh, Psalm 32. It's actually a writing of Psalm 32 from our worship team. Our worship team uh, wrote, Psalm 30, wrote this song a couple years ago as just a rewrite. And uh, I want you to reflect on the words of this. It's a penitential psalm, a psalm of repentance. And then I'll come up and lead us to protect.
for 